Hey guys, before we get into the episode, I want to share a quick podcast trailer from a friend of mine, a new friend of mine, Scott Sigler. If you enjoy Another World Audiobooks, I think you're going to enjoy this, so check it out. Heart Stephen King, Heart Chuck Palahniuk, Infected blends science fiction and horror into a pulpy masterpiece of action, terror, and suspense. James Rollins, New York Times bestselling author of The Judas Strain and Black Order. The Infected Trilogy is an unabridged three-season audio fiction series from number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Powerfully written, an unforgettable central character. Dallas Morning News. Infected is one hell of an exhilarating ride. Joe R. Lansdale, World Horror Convention grand Grandmaster and author of Bubba Hotep and Hap and Leonard. All 88 episodes, 53 hours of horror, are free and available now wherever you listen to podcasts. Sigler is the Richard Matheson of the 21st century. Infected is a flawless thinking person's thriller. Jonathan Mayberry, Bram Stoker award-winning author of V-Wars and the Joe Ledger series. Huge shout out to Scott, and uh, thank you for allowing me to put this on my podcast to tell other people about it. Uh, Make sure to check out his stuff at scottsigler.com slash books. So it's S-C-O-T-T-S-I-G-L-E-R.com slash books. And then you can also just look up whatever podcast uh, player you're using. You can go ahead and just search Scott Sigler, and that will pop right up his podcast. Check it out, subscribe, and make sure you let him know. Maybe leave a review and let him know that you came from Another World Audiobooks. Welcome back to Another World Audiobooks, so happy to have you here. I would just like to start by saying that I think uh, we should start saying Paul's nay instead of glasses, and people should wear those more often. Uh, you don't see uh, Paul's nay around uh, very often these days, but it's this pretty fancy thing, and I think we should bring it back. Uh, it definitely helps in this case, as we shall see. So, uh, yeah, I hope you guys are enjoying the book so far. Let me know. I'd love to hear from you if you did want to leave a review or something like that. I guess that's something people still do for podcasts. I guess it should be easier now. I think most people listen on like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or as it used to be known as iTunes, is notorious for being difficult to leave reviews. So, <laughs> things like Spotify, though, uh, CastBox, those type of apps make it a lot easier to leave a review. I, uh, Podcast Attic is another one. Uh, so, whatever podcast player you're using, you could leave a review, and uh, I don't get notified when people leave a review, so if you do leave a review, I would love to give you a huge shout out on the show, um, and uh, just say thank you, so if you want to uh, maybe send a screenshot of it to uh, on social media, Another World Audiobooks, or anotherworldaudiobooks at gmail.com, and I would love to give you a shout out and say thank you for leaving a review, it really helps a lot, um, just uh, people are checking out the podcast, they want to see that it is uh, a, a good podcast, one worth listening to, so hopefully you think so. Obviously, you're listening to it, so (laughs) hopefully uh, that is the case. So without further ado, let's get into Chapter 10 of The Return of Sherlock Holmes. Chapter 10 The Adventure of the Golden Pansnay When I look at the three massive manuscript volumes which contain our work for the year 1894, I confess that it is very difficult for me, out of such a wealth of material, to select the cases which are most interesting in themselves, and at the same time most conducive to a display of those peculiar powers for which my friend was famous. As I turn over the pages, I see my notes upon the repulsive story of the Red Leech, and the terrible death of Crosby, the banker. Here also I find an account of the Adelton tragedy, and the singular contents of the ancient British barrow. 
The famous Smith-Mortimer succession case comes also within this period, and so does the tracking and arrest of Hurrit, the Boulevard assassin, an exploit which won for Holmes an autographed letter of thanks from the French president and the Order of the Legion of Honor. Each of these would furnish a narrative, but on the whole I am of opinion that none of them unites so many singular points of interest as the episode of Yoxley Old Place, which includes not only the lamentable death of young Willoughby Smith, but also the subsequent developments which threw so curious a light upon the causes of the crime. It was a wild, tempestuous night, towards the close of November. Holmes and I sat together in silence all the evening. He engaged with the powerful lens, deciphering the remains of the original inscription upon a palimpsest, I deep in a recent treatise upon surgery. Outside the wind howled down Baker Street, while the rain beat fiercely against the windows. It was strange there, in the very depths of the town, with ten miles of man's handiwork on every side of us, to feel the iron grip of nature, and to be conscious that, to the huge elemental forces, all London was no more than the molehills that dot the fields. I walked to the window and looked out on the deserted street. The occasional lamps gleamed on the expanse of muddy road and shining pavement. A single cab was splashing its way from the Oxford Street end. "'Well, Watson, it's as well we have not to turn out tonight,' said Holmes, laying aside his lens and rolling up the palimpsest. "'I've done enough for one sitting. It is trying work for the eyes. So far as I can make out, it is nothing more exciting than an abbey's account dating from the second half of the fifteenth century. Hello, hello, hello. What's this?' Amid the droning of the wind, there had come the stamping of a horse's hooves and the long grind of a wheel as it rasped against the curb. The cab which I had seen had pulled up at the door. "'What can he want?' I ejaculated as a man stepped out of it. "'Want? He wants us. And we, my poor Watson, want overcoats and cravats and galoshes, and every aid that man ever invented to fight off the weather. "'Wait a bit, though. There's the cab off again. There's hope yet.' He'd have kept it if he wanted us to come. Run down, my dear fellow, and open the door, for all virtuous folk have been long in bed. When the light of the hall lamp fell upon our midnight visitor, I had no difficulty in recognizing him. It was young Stanley Hopkins, a promising detective, in whose career Holmes had several times shown a very practical interest. "'Is he in?' he asked eagerly. "'Come up, my dear sir,' said Holmes' voice from above. I hope you have no designs upon us on such a night as this. The detective mounted the stairs, and our lamp gleamed upon his shining waterproof. I helped him out of it, while Holmes knocked a blaze out of the logs in the grate. Now, my dear Hopkins, drag up and warm your toes, said he. Here's a cigar, and Doctor has a prescription containing hot water and a lemon, which is good medicine on a night like this. It must be something important which has brought you out in such a gale. "'It is indeed, Mr. Holmes. I've had a bustling afternoon, I promise you. Did you see anything of the Yoxley case in the latest editions?' "'I've seen nothing later than the fifteenth century today.' "'Well, it was only a paragraph, and all wrong at that, so you've not missed anything. I haven't let the grass grow under my feet. It's down in Kent, seven miles from Chatham, and three from the railway line.' I was wired for at 3.15, reached Yorksley Old Place at 5, conducted my investigation, was back at Charing Cross by the last train, and straight to you by cab. Which means, I suppose, that you are not quite clear about your case? 
It means that I can make neither head nor tail of it. So far as I can see, it is just as tangled a business as ever I handled. And yet, at first, it seems so simple that one couldn't go wrong. There's no motive, Mr. Holmes. That's what bothers me. I can't put my hand on a motive. Here's a man dead, there's no denying that. But, so far as I can see, no reason on earth why anyone should wish him harm. Holmes lit his cigar and leaned back in his chair. "'Let us hear about it,' said he. "'I've got my facts pretty clear,' said Stanley Hopkins. "'All I want to know is what they all mean. "'The story, so far as I can make out, is like this. "'Some years ago, this country house, Yorksley Old Place, "'was taken by an elderly man who gave the name of Professor Coram. "'He was an invalid, keeping his bed half the time, "'and the other half hobbling round the house with a stick "'or being pushed about the grounds by the gardener in a bath-chair.' He was well liked by the few neighbours who called upon him, and he has the reputation down there of being a very learned man. His household used to consist of an elderly housekeeper, Mrs. Marker, and of a maid, Susan Tarleton. These have both been with him since his arrival, and they seem to be women of excellent character. The professor is writing a learned book, and he found it necessary, about a year ago, to engage a secretary. The first two that he tried were not successes, but the third, Mr. Willoughby Smith, a very young man straight from the university, seems to have been just what his employer wanted. His work consisted in writing all the morning to the professor's dictation, and he usually spent the evening in hunting up references and passages which bore upon the next day's work. This Willoughby Smith has nothing against him, either as a boy at Uppingham or as a young man at Cambridge. I have seen his testimonials, and from the first he was a decent quiet, hard-working fellow, with no weak spot in him at all. And yet, this is the lad who has met his death this morning, in the professor's study, under circumstances which can point only to murder. The wind howled and screamed at the windows. Holmes and I drew closer to the fire, while the young inspector slowly and point by point delivered his singular narrative. "'If you were to search all England,' said he, I don't suppose you could find a household more self-contained or freer from outside influences. Whole weeks would pass, and not one of them would go past the garden gate. The professor was buried in his work and existed for nothing else. Young Smith knew nobody in the neighbourhood, and lived very much as his employer did. The two women had nothing to take them from the house. Mortimer, the gardener, who wheels the bath-chair, is an army pensioner, an old Crimean man of excellent character— he does not live in the house, but in a three-roomed cottage at the other end of the garden. Those are the only two people that you would find within the grounds of Yorksley Old Place. At the same time, the gate of the garden is a hundred yards from the main London to Chatham Road. It opens with a latch, and there is nothing to prevent anyone from walking in. Now I will give you the evidence of Susan Tarleton, who is the only person who can say anything positive about the matter. It was in the forenoon, between eleven and twelve, she was engaged at the moment in hanging some curtains in the upstairs front bedroom. Professor Coram was still in bed, for when the weather is bad, he seldom rises before midday. The housekeeper was busied with some work in the back of the house. Willoughby Smith had been in his bedroom, which he uses as a sitting room, but the maid heard him at the moment pass along the passage and descend to the study immediately below her. She did not see him, but she says she could not be mistaken in his quick, firm tread. She did not hear the study door close, but a minute or so later there was a dreadful cry in the room below. It was a wild, 
hoarse scream, so strange and unnatural that it might have come either from a man or a woman. At the same instant there was a heavy thud which shook the whole house, and then all was silence. The maid stood petrified for a moment, and then, recovering her courage, she ran downstairs. The study door was shut, and she opened it. Inside, young Mr. Willoughby Smith was stretched upon the floor. At first she could see no injury, but as she tried to raise him she saw that blood was pouring from the underside of his neck. It was pierced by a very small but very deep wound which had divided the carotid artery. The instrument with which the injury had been inflicted lay upon the carpet beside him. It was one of those small ceiling-wax knives to be found on old-fashioned writing-tables, with an ivory handle and a stiff blade. It was part of the fittings of the professor's own desk. At first the maid thought the young smith was already dead, but on pouring some water from the carafe over his forehead he opened his eyes for an instant. "'The professor,' he murmured. "'It was she.' The maid is prepared to swear that those were the exact words. He tried desperately to say something else, and he held his right hand up in the air. Then he fell back dead. In the meantime, the housekeeper had also arrived upon the scene, but she was just too late to catch the young man's dying words. Leaving Susan with the body, she hurried to the professor's room. He was sitting up in bed, horribly agitated, for he had heard enough to convince him that something terrible had occurred. Mrs. Marker is prepared to swear that the professor was still in his nightclothes, and indeed was impossible for him to dress without the help of Mortimer, whose orders were to come at twelve o'clock. The professor declared that he heard the distant cry, but that he knows nothing more. He can give no explanation of the young man's last words, the professor, it was she, but imagines that they were the outcome of delirium. He believes that Willoughby Smith had not an enemy in the world, and can give no reason of the crime. His first action was to send Mortimer, the gardener, for the local police. A little later, the chief constable sent for me. Nothing was moved before I got there, and strict orders were given that no one should walk upon the paths leading to the house. It was a splendid chance of putting your theories into practice, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. There was really nothing wanting. Except Mr. Sherlock Holmes, said my companion with a somewhat bitter smile. Well, let us hear about it. What sort of a job did you make of it? I must ask you first, Mr. Holmes, to glance at this rough plan, which will give you a general idea of the position of the professor's study, and the various points of the case. It will help you in following my investigation. He unfolded the rough chart, which I here reproduce, and he laid it across Holmes's knee. I rose, and standing behind Holmes, studied it over his shoulder. It is very rough, of course, and it only deals with the points which seem to me to be essential. All the rest you will see later for yourself. Now, first of all, presuming that the assassin entered the house, how did he or she come in? Undoubtedly, by the garden path and the back door, for which there is direct access to the study. Any other way would have been exceedingly complicated. The escape must have been made along that line, for of the two other exits from the room, one was blocked by Susan as she ran downstairs, and the other leads straight to the professor's bedroom. I therefore directed my attention at once to the garden path, which was saturated with recent rain, and would certainly show any footmarks. My examination showed that I was dealing with a cautious and expert criminal. No footmarks were to be found on the path. There could be no question, however, that someone had passed along the grass border which lines the path, and he had done so in order to avoid leaving a track. 
I could not find anything in the nature of a distinct impression, but the grass was trodden down, and someone had undoubtedly passed. It could only have been the murderer, since neither the gardener nor anyone else had been there that morning, and the rain had only begun during the night. One moment, said Holmes. Where does this path lead to? To the road. How long is it? A hundred yards or so. At the point where the path crosses the gate, you could surely pick up the tracks. Unfortunately, the path was tiled at that point. Well, on the road itself. No, it was all trodden into mire. Tut tut. Well then, these tracks upon the grass, were they coming or going? It is impossible to say. There was never any outline. A large foot or small? You could not distinguish. Holmes gave an ejaculation of impatience. It has been pouring rain and blowing a hurricane ever since, said he. It will be harder to read now than that palimpsest. Well, well, it can't be helped. What did you do, Hopkins, after you had made certain you had made certain of nothing? I think I had made certain of a good deal, Mr. Holmes. I knew that someone had entered the house cautiously from without. I next examined the corridor. It is lined with coconut matting, and had taken no impression of any kind. This brought me into the study itself. It is a scantily furnished room. The main article is a large writing table with a fixed bureau. This bureau consists of a double column of drawers, with a central small cupboard between them. The drawers were open, the cupboard locked. The drawers, it seemed, were always open, and nothing of value was kept in them. There were some papers of importance in the cupboard, but there were no signs that this had been tampered with, and the professor assures me that nothing was missing. It is certain that no robbery was committed. I come now to the body of the young man. It was found near the bureau, and just to the left of it, as marked upon that chart. The stab was on the right side of the neck, and from just behind forward, so that it is almost impossible that it could have been self-inflicted. Unless he fell upon the knife, said Holmes. Exactly. The idea crossed my mind, but we found the knife some feet away from the body, so that seems impossible. Then, of course, there are the man's own dying words. And finally, there was this very important piece of evidence which was found clasped in the dead man's right hand. From his pocket, Stanley Hopkins drew a small paper packet. He unfolded it and disclosed a golden pince-nez, with two broken ends of black silk cord dangling from the end of it. Willoughby Smith had excellent sight, he added. There can be no question that this was snatched from the face or the person of the assassin. Holmes took the glasses into his hand and examined them with the utmost attention and interest. He held them on his nose, endeavoured to read through them, went to the window and stared up the street with them, looking at them most minutely in the full light of the lamp, and finally, with a chuckle, seated himself at the table and wrote a few lines upon a sheet of paper, which he tossed across to Stanley Hopkins. "'That's the best I can do for you,' said he. "'It may prove to be of some use.' The astonished detective read the note aloud. It ran as follows. "'Wanted, a woman of good address, attired like a lady. She has a remarkably thick nose, with eyes which are set close upon either side of it.' She has a puckered forehead, a peering expression, and probably rounded shoulders. There are indications that she has had recourse to an optician at least twice during the last few months. As her glasses are of remarkable strength, and as opticians are not very numerous, there should be no difficulty in tracing her. Holmes smiled at the astonishment of Hopkins, which must have been reflected upon my features. 
Surely my deductions are simplicity itself, said he. It would be difficult to name any articles which afford a finer field of inference than a pair of glasses, especially so remarkable a pair as these. That they belong to a woman, I infer from their delicacy, and also, of course, from the last words of the dying man. As to her being a person of refinement and well-dressed, they are, as you perceive, handsomely mounted in solid gold, and it is inconceivable that any one who wore such glasses could be slatternly in other respects. You will find that the clips are too wide for your nose, showing that the lady's nose was very broad at the base. This sort of nose is usually a short and coarse one, but there is a sufficient number of exceptions to prevent me from being dogmatic, or from insisting upon this point in my description. My own face is a narrow one, and yet I find that I cannot get my eyes into the centre, nor near the centre, of these glasses. Therefore the lady's eyes are set very near to the sides of the nose. You will perceive, Watson, that the glasses are concave and of unusual strength. A lady whose vision has been so extremely contracted all her life is sure to have the physical characteristics of such vision, which are seen in the forehead, the eyelids, and the shoulders. Yes, I said. I can follow each of your arguments. I confess, however, that I am unable to understand how you arrive at the double visit to the optician. Holmes took the glasses in his hand. You will perceive, said he, that the clips are lined with tiny bands of cork to soften the pressure upon the nose. One of these is discoloured and worn to some slight extent, but the other is new. Evidently one has fallen off and been replaced. I should judge that the older of them has not been there more than a few months. They exactly correspond, so I gather that the lady went back to the same establishment for the second. "'By George, it's marvellous! cried Hopkins in an ecstasy of admiration. "'To think that I had all that evidence in my hand and never knew it! I had intended, however, to go round at the London opticians.' "'Of course you would. Meanwhile, have you anything more to tell us about the case?' "'Nothing, Mr. Holmes. I think that you know as much as I do now, probably more.' We've had inquiries made as to any strangers seen on the country roads or at the railway station. We have heard of none. What beats me is the utter want of all object in the crime. Not a ghost of a motive can anyone suggest. Ah, there I am not in a position to help you. But I suppose you want us to come out tomorrow. If it is not asking too much, Mr. Holmes, there is a train from Charing Cross to Chatham at six in the morning, and we should be at Yoxley Old Place between eight and nine. Then we shall take it. Your case has certainly some features of great interest, and I shall be delighted to look into it. Well, it's nearly one, and we had best get a few hours sleep. I dare say you can manage all right on the sofa in front of the fire. I'll light my spirit lamp and give you a cup of coffee before we start. All right, we'll be coming at you with part two next week. Thank you guys for your patience. I have a lot going on in life right now. Um, <laughs> and so we're, uh, yeah, just trying to get make sure that I at least get out a, a, a good-sized episode for you every week. Uh, if you want more content, you can definitely go check out the backlist, obviously. Uh, we got a bunch of stuff up on YouTube as well. And you can also always buy the full audiobooks. If you search Another World Audiobooks on most... Uh, 
audiobook stores like uh, Google Play or any, anything like that. Um, let's see, Chirp is one of them. There's a bunch of them out there. If you search another world audiobooks, usually it'll come up. If you don't, then if you don't see that, then just search Brady Smith and you should be able to find uh, most of the audiobooks from another world on there. So hopefully uh, you guys enjoyed that and uh, I will be uh, getting another episode ready for you and getting that out here next week. Thanks for listening and sharing the podcast. That is really the best way to help us grow and uh, make sure that we continue to produce awesome stuff for you so thanks guys and we'll catch you next week